We have been in the book of 1 Samuel, and we are continuing that series. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7. We looked at the first couple verses last week, and uh, we'll look at those again here in the entire chapter, Lord willing, in our time this morning. I recognize that there comes a time, uh, maybe for some even here, uh, in the stage of life or where you're at, and you begin to wonder if you ever will get back to God. Not as if God has moved or that God has gotten lost, but that you have. There comes a time uh, when you, you think that you have everything under control. You say, I, I've got this. I'm, I'm good. And, and then one day you realize that you're not. You had very bright hopes and a great future, but life didn't work out the way that you thought it would. And now you live with regrets of how things have turned out. Uh, your own regrets in life, but also the regrets of others weighing down on you. You, know, you thought we were the captain of our own life, the commander, and now when it's all come to fruition, um, all we have done is make a shipwreck of our lives. And we now live in a, a wasteland of what might have been. And whether this has come as a result of your poor choices or just the result of living in a sin-cursed world, finding yourself wondering, can this ever turn for the better? Can I find God, or maybe more pressing, can he find me? Can he save me? Maybe you're here this morning on a spiritual journey, a, a, a pilgrimage maybe, looking for answers, looking for hope. Or maybe you're here this morning and you would consider yourself a Christian, but somewhere along the lines, your life and God began to separate. And now you're, you're distant. This morning, friends, as we come back to 1 Samuel, we come to a people who are in the same boat. Who have now journeyed far away from God and are looking for a way back. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 7, and I'm going to read the chapter here. So would you follow with me as I read? And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, then he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. 
And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. And he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. This morning, my desire is to walk through this chapter. And I have three points I want to draw your attention to as we walk through, all relating to mercy. The first is the pleading for mercy. Next, the experiencing mercy. And third, the remembering mercy. Before we look at that, would you join me in prayer? Father, we come before your throne as a needy people. We need you. We recognize again this morning as we have gathered here in this place to worship you that we continue to need you. God, I need you this morning to speak to your people, to teach your people. And I ask that you would speak through me, that you would be the, the focus, the, the guide through our time this morning as we, as we look at this chapter from your word. God, give us understanding, give your people hope, encouragement, but I also pray that you would bring conviction. I pray that you would soften hearts that are here this morning to hear and understand and to receive your word. We pray this all. In Jesus' most glorious name, amen. First point this morning is the pleading for mercy. Would you consider yourself a patient person? I think we jokingly say uh, time and again that we need more patience, and as soon as we get the words out, we're impatient as how slow that happens in our life. I think as humans, we struggle with patience, partly because we're, we're time-oriented creatures, we live within time barriers, and we seem not to like it. But God doesn't live within those parameters. He is time-free. He is not obligated by time. We are. And because of this, God is patient. I think we see the patience of God in this chapter. Last week, we left off at verse 2 of chapter 7, and it reveals again the ark coming back to God's people and where it lands. And then in verse 2, it says, from that from the day that ark was lodged at Kiriath Jerem, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. 20 years passed. 20 years. Wonder what that 20 years was. We're not really sure. It says now they're lamenting. It might have been in 20 years full of lamenting, sadness, wailing, seeking. Seeking what? Well, 
It says here in the verse 2, they're lamented after the Lord. They, they yearn for the Lord now. They're pleading for mercy. Why? What was so bad? If you go back in the chapter 6, chapter 5, chapter 4, it was death. They suffered so greatly because of their sins. So much death. Now they're, they're learning about God. And God is patient with them. And we read in verse 3, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. The people are lamenting now. They're, they're pleading with the Lord. And Samuel comes back onto the scene. If you remember, it's been a few chapters since we've heard anything about Samuel. It seems as though he's been there all along, all in the background. What was Samuel doing for those 20 years? We can only conjecture based upon the character of Samuel, but my belief is that he spent those 20 years preaching, preaching to Israel. He was striving to make them see their sin against God, to help them see their, the losses they had to Philistines was there because of sin. They, they had turned away from God. I believe he spent his time pleading with the people to forsake their idolatry, moving from place to place, preaching, imploring repentance. And from this, I learned that genuine repentance takes time. Perhaps you've been praying for someone, someone on your list that you've been praying for for years to, to repent, to turn. And my encouragement to you is to continue. And from this, you see that genuine repentance takes time. Keep preaching. Keep the word before them. Keep showing them love and grace. Keep praying. I believe this is what Samuel does. After 20 years, now in full-time service for his Lord, after seeing the, the mourning and the weeping, he's, he's going to direct them now. He's teaching them about, about repentance. He's teaching us even the pattern of repentance in verse 3. As I, as I dug into the chapter, I began to get absorbed in this topic of repentance and, and had a book on my shelf that I've had for some time, haven't read yet fully, a Puritan paperback uh, written by Thomas Watson. Madeline came in my office Wednesday and said, oh, you're reading a book. It looks kind of new. And I said, well, actually, it was written in 1668. You know, it's an old book. The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson. But in it, just like an American 2017, Watson too, dealt with this issue in England in the 1600s, the lack of repentance. Relatively small book, 122 pages. It took me a day to read, less. Engaging book. I encourage you to get a copy. What I like about the book is that Watson shows us what repentance is, the process of repentance, of turning away from our sin. And, and Watson in the book spends the early part of it unmasking a, a counterfeit repentance and, and then displaying for us what true repentance is. And the latter part of the book is Watson's passionate plea for his readers to repent. There are many positives and negatives about the book. If you want to know more, more about it, you can see me after the service. I'll give you my feedback on it. But in this, he uncovers some of the, the difficulties that we have with repentance, the, the difference between confession and repenting. Watson says, repentance is the true leaving of sin when the acts of sin cease from the infusion of a principle of grace 
as the air ceases to be dark from the infusion of light. He says, repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. It's a turning away from sin and a turning to God. It's a changing of heart. The main thrust of the book Watson has here is the six main ingredients of this. He says it's a sight of sin, a sorrow for sin, a confession of sin, a shame for sin, a hatred for sin, and a turning from sin. I won't go into detail there. You'll have to get a copy of the book for yourself and study it. But here in our text this morning, Samuel identifies three ingredients for repentance in, in verse 3. Did you catch that there in verse 3? Samuel said to the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, put away your foreign gods. Then he says, direct your heart to the Lord, and third, serve him only. The first thing that was needed was to put away the foreign gods. Along the way in their life, the, the people had left the God of Israel and had taken the gods of the people. We learn in verse 4 that they had gods of Baal and Ashtoreth. These were the Canaanite gods, a husband and wife. They were gods and of infertility. These idols were associated with all, all sorts of sexual innuendo in the Canaanite religion. It shouldn't be shocking to us that they're, they're the gods that they gravitated to as we have we've studied Eli and his sons and the practice in the tabernacle. But he says to them in this, are you serious about God? Are, are you serious about following Yahweh? Then, then put away the foreign gods. He's instructing them to abandon their idols, to, to leave it, to turn your back on it. It's a physical action that the people needed to take. They couldn't continue to hold on to their idols and serve the living God. Genuine repentance is a tangible repentance. It's concrete. We can see it. For them, they had to put away their idols and worship the only God, Yahweh. So I think when I need to ask, what idols do you cling to? If you remember last week, we heard a definition of an idol from Tim Keller. He writes that an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Is there anything in your life that is more important to you than God? Anything in your life that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Some idolize the thought of being liked, idolize the thought of being accepted and wanted. They think if I can get to that point in my life to have the adoration from others, to finally have the honor at work, the admiration of, of all the hours of service that I put in, maybe it comes out of a desire to be married, to be loved, to be wanted, to be appreciated. Some idolize the thought of being accomplished in their life or in their work, whether that's at the office or at home. You wallow in the, the never-ending projects, just running day in and day out of just trying to get things done. Or, or the house is, is never quite clean. It's never in order. You've just finished one thing and my child unravels another. And it just keeps going. You desire to be accomplished, to be fulfilled, but it never seems to happen. And one mess after another, you begin to idolize completeness, sanity. 
some other idolized satisfaction. You constantly look for the best food. You talk about that. This restaurant has this so good food or, or the best experience or the best idea for the best result. And you're in a search for gratification for all that you desire. Whether that's for yourself or your family, your job, your hobbies, only the best will do. And the only way you know if you've achieved it is if you're now satisfied. You've idolized that. You've pursued that. That's become more important than God. See, really, we can idolize anything. We can so easily get absorbed in things and people more than God. Instead, we should idolize God. When Samuel speaks to the people to put away their gods, we need to take a long, hard look at our own lives. What have we placed on the shelf of our life as a little God that we now idolize? If it's not the God of the Bible, then we need to put it away. The Westminster Confession talks about repentance, and, and when it does, it talks about an atutiful element, uh, element excuse me, a, a turning away from sin and a turning towards the Lord. And there's a, a negative and a positive, and we see that here in this verse. They need to turn away from their idols. They need to put away their idols. The second, they need to turn to the Lord. He says to put away their foreign gods from among you and direct your heart to the Lord. They needed to direct their hearts. You know, the Bible essentially divides people into two pieces, your, your outer man and your inner man. The outer man is your body, your, your physical self. It's the house that God gave you for your heart to dwell in while you remain on earth. The, the Bible also uses a lot of words to describe the inner man, the, the mind, the emotion, the soul, the spirit, and the will. And all these terms are, are summed up in a big backs, basket term of the heart. So when the Bible talks about the heart, it's, it's talking about what causes us to function. It's a, talking about our entire personhood. And the heart is your directional system. The heart is your steering wheel for life. When Samuel is telling the people to direct their hearts, he's being very pastoral here, counseling them and for them to understand how repentance works for their life. See, the, the heart is very important to the life of a human. When it comes to repentance, from turning away from the world and turning to Christ, directing our hearts is what's most important, he says. And just so you know, the, the world will not help you in your fight against your heart. All right? What does the world say? You've heard it before. What does the world say? The, the world says you need to follow your heart. What horrible advice that is. Because if you read the Bible, you recognize there's some things about your own heart. You know, actually, the, the world has no idea of what repentance is. Uh, it's solely a Christian thing. In fact, I just did a Google search, just the word repentance, and, and I found no articles on CNN about repentance. Shocking. Nothing on ESPN. Nothing on any of those world articles, no, those, those systems there. This is distinctly Christian. The world wants nothing to do with repentance. The world says just do what you want. But whatever you do, follow your heart. 
And listen, friends, this is tragic advice. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We cannot follow our heart because our hearts do not naturally follow God. They follow us, follow what we want, what we desire. Oh, he's right here. He says, we, we direct our hearts. We teach our hearts the truth of the scriptures. Our hearts are directed by the word of God, not by feeling and emotion only. No, it's by what God's word says. So Samuel here, after the negative of removing the idols, there needed to be a positive. They need to commit themselves. And, and, and the idea that he's communicating here is a, a tenacious determination to remain faithful and loyal to God. It's the opposite of being stubborn and rebellious. You know, in the, the New Testament, we read about in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will devote, be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or fill in the blank. Power, prestige, comfort. So the question today is, who will you serve? God or man? Stuff, comfort. So the first two ingredients here, to put away the gods and direct their hearts. And the third is there in verse three. It says, put away the foreign gods and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. The third thing, to serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And, and from this, friends, we, we understand and recognize that God is incredibly jealous. There are two words for jealous, two meanings for jealous in the English language. The word that we naturally go to in our minds is, is the word envy. When we think of jealousy, we think of envy. So when you say you're jealous, it can mean that you're, you're envious of someone's beauty or their money or you're, or you're mad at them because they have something that you think you, you, you should have. And so usually it's a, a self-absorbed thought. But there's another way that the word is used in English. It doesn't mean to be angry at someone or wish that you have what they have. It means that you're passionate for someone or passionate for something. To be committed to someone or something. To be jealous for something is to be passionate and committed. It's a positive thing. And so what we see here is God is incredibly jealous for us. And it's in the positive. That we serve him alone. Just like in a, a marriage relationship, there's jealousy there that needs to be there that's holy. The, the wife is jealous for the husband, meaning it's him and him alone. And the husband is jealous for the wife. It's her and her alone. It's a positive thing. And nothing comes in between. It's the same with us and God. He's jealous for us. We don't get distracted by other things. We don't add things. We don't substitute things. We have this narrow focus. It's God and God alone. That's what it means to be a Christian. There's no other loves that, that supersede our love for him. It's God. It's always been God. And this is the standard that's laid out for us in Scripture. And this is what, what, what Samuel is asking the people here. 
in regards to this genuine repentance, that they serve God and serve God alone. So we see the response in verse 4, the people of Israel put away the, the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they serve the Lord only. And they follow the leadership of Samuel, and they, they put away their gods. And then verse 5, then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. The drawing of water and pouring it out is something that we don't read about anywhere else in the New Testament that I could find. And because of it, it's hard to to have any, any concrete understanding of what they're doing, but one would guess it was a symbol of their confession of sin and their, their pouring out of their selfish desires to, to serve God and serve him alone. You notice there they've agreed with God. They say, we have sinned against the Lord. And this is necessary for repentance. It isn't a feeling. It's, it's not that you're argued into it. It's agreeing with God that we have sinned. And you can't repent unless you agree with God that you've sinned. This passage is the beginning of Samuel's ministry as he leads the people back into a right relationship with God. So first we've seen they plead for mercy. The second is they experience mercy. Second, experiencing mercy. In verse 7, when the now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. It seems that the Philistines are always coming. They're always coming. And they hear, they, they hear the rabble-rousing, probably, of what's happening, and they're afraid now. They're going to come and attack us. So before that happens, they assemble and, and go. And in verse 8, the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. They, they recognize that they're coming. They also realize that prayer is their only hope. They have no power in themselves. So they come to Samuel, their intercessor, and they, they ask him to intercede for them, to, to pray to God. So verse 9, Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. And maybe you're here this morning and you feel like the world is unraveling around you. Things are not going the way that you think they should. And really what's happening is your plans are unraveling around you. But through it all, God is still holding you together. It made me think in that moment, what is it like to be God? He's never worried. He never is concerned. He doesn't ever fret. All and every one of his thoughts are holy. Every one of his responses is right. Filled with graciousness and peace and love. All of which he graciously gives to his people and how often do we cry out to God in fear because it seems that our world is crashing down around us and we, and we don't know what to do, and yet God is there. Nothing crashes down around God. He's in control. We see the, the, the mercy that God gives to his people in verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered. 
with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And all I have to say there is, isn't God awesome? That's astounding to think about this. The, the world is getting smaller and smaller, and that fear is just starting to overwhelm them again. They can hear their enemy closing in, and they run to God, and he answers, and his answer is loud. It says that the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. That had to be loud. And the Lord roars back to the Philistines who he is. He is not one to be messed with. And his thunder is so incredible that it threw them into confusion. We're not sure if it was his voice that thundered from heaven or just a, a violent storm. Either way, it messed with them and they were beat. Why is it that prayer is looked at as a last resort? One author I came across this week said, we tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything. Most of us would prefer, however, to spend our time doing something that will get immediate results. We don't want to wait for God to resolve matters in his good time because his idea of good time is seldom in sync with ours. That hurts, I'll just be honest, because I always think my time's best, and I'm sure you do too. This was Israel. And they were proficient at acting before going to God. But how about you, my friends? Are you an expert at trying to solve a problem before going to God? So quick to post things on Instagram, on Facebook, and Twitter, our issues. But do we treat prayer with the same sense of urgency? And here, God brings Israel to their knees. And listen, it's a wonderful thing. That's a great place to be. And maybe you're here, and God has brought you to your knees, to a hard place, and you're surrounded by your enemies. You're not sure which way to turn or how you're going to get out of the mess that you're in. It may be your fault, it may not. And now you're beside yourself and you've, you've come here this morning either by habit or by chance and you're dejected, you're despondent. You don't know where to turn. And friends, this is a good place to be because the answer is in the text. The answer is in scripture here. Do you see the answer? Samuel calls out to the Lord and he answers. If you're here this morning and that's the situation that you're in, you need to underline verse nine. God answers. It brings you hope that God hears. He hears your prayers. He, he hears you when you're despondent, when you're troubled, when you're discouraged. And the challenge for us is to remember that we need to go to God first. Not as a last resort. And so they plead for mercy. They experience mercy in tremendous ways. But Samuel's not done. 
The last is they need to remember mercy. Verse 11. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. He set up a stone. Why? Why did he do that? You know, again, Samuel's being very pastoral here. He knows what men and women are like, and he knows that we will forget. We are a forgetful people. Can you admit that this morning? We forget God's mercies in our life. And don't tell me that you don't. Because every time you complain or grumble in life, you are forgetting God's mercies in your life. We do it all the time. You might have done it this morning already. So Samuel sets up a stone and he calls it Ebenezer. The stone of help. And he set it there to be a reminder to the people of all that the Lord has done. We're going to sing about this here at the end of the service about our Ebenezer. When I was in college, I took a trip with some friends to visit a family of one of my classmates. Their parents were missionaries in Puerto Rico. And at the first meal, we, we pulled up in their large table because they would always have guests. And as we sat down and, and, and just had a light conversation, I noticed to my left as I was sitting, there was this square shelf on their wall. And it had individual cubbies. And it was a large shelf. And in each cubby on this shelf held an item and as I looked more closely I noticed that none of them matched in fact it was weird so during dinner I would join in the conversation but I was always just drawn to the shelf and I would look at as best I could without being completely obvious that I was confused by the shelf and trying to decipher what it all meant in one cubby there was a matchbox car that was all beat up in there and another, I could see a, a ticket stub from something else. Another cubby was a, a broken teacup. And another one was a lock of hair. And, and honestly, by the time that dessert rolled around, I was quite scared. <laughs> Staying in their house, are they going to come cut off some of my hair at night? What have I gotten into? And so we, we were finishing dessert, and, and, and the father, the missionary Don, noticed me noticing the shelf. And he piped up and asked, I bet you're really curious about that shelf what all that stuff is, right? And, and I said, yeah, I'm most definitely intrigued. And his wife chimed in and asked, go ahead, pick an item that you see, and, and I'll tell you why it's up there. And I said, well, since you've asked, what's up with the hair? And they laughed, proceeded to tell a story. They were on deputation at one point earlier, years ago, as they were raising support to go to South Africa, and they were finishing a Sunday night meeting in a small church in West Virginia, and they had made their way outside, the family and the congregants, and they were mingling and discussing uh, the ministry and what was happening. And, and they noticed that their youngest was not with them. And, and the next thing they, they recognized was a, a loud screaming horn racing by. And they, and they look over and they said all they could see was a flash of blonde hair and a large truck racing down the road. 
And the daughter, my classmate actually, was two or three at the time, had chased a ball into the street. And the moment right before she would get struck, her brother sees it and grabs her. And all the parents could see, they said, and they could remember it, was the flash of blonde hair. So like they did as normal people, they cut off that locket of hair and they put it on the shelf. And I could tell as we're sitting there at that point, you know, recognizing God's graciousness in their lives, they're welling up in tears. They remembered quite clearly what God had done. And they named their shelf. Go ahead and tell me what they name it. Ebenezer. They used that as a reminder for all the visitors. And they'd, they'd have people all the time that weren't believers. And they could concretely, time and again, point to people and say, look at what my God has done. One of the commentators that I read this week called Ebenezer the gospel rock. I love that. The gospel rock, because you, when you look at this stone, you're reminded of the good news that God delivers his people. And God has delivered us from far worse than the Philistines. He has delivered us from hell. And this rock would remind them of the victory that God had brought to but it would also be a double-edged sword to the people because it, it was Ebenezer, the place where the Israelites would be camped, where the ark was, where the Philistines came and took the ark. And so they would remember not only the mercy of God, but they would also remember the incredible foolishness that brought about this situation in the first place. It would remind them of their sin. And it would remind them of his grace. Just like when we look at the cross behind us, reminds us of our sin. And it reminds us what Christ did for us. Samuel's word at the end of verse 12 is very interesting for us to note. He says, till now the Lord has helped us. Until now, with those words, he's describing all the events that lead up to this one. An unbroken succession of divine deliverance for his people. This is his way of linking it all together. To show the people the enduring faithfulness of their God, the mercy of God. And he wasn't just bringing to their memory all the cheery times, but those times of failure, of sin. But yet, in those times, and as we remember it in our own life, we need to remember God's faithfulness. He never left us. He never abandoned us. Ebenezer, the gospel rock. Well, the chapter ends in kind of an odd way. Kind of gives you an overview of the ministry of Samuel. It says in verse 15 through the end, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. 
He was faithful with the life that God had given him. As I conclude, I have two questions from the text here this morning. First question is, when was the last time you said, I have sinned against the Lord? And I'm asking honestly, when is the last time you have confessed sin to God? Do you confess your sins to God? Or have you come to an understanding that you can somehow just brush them under the rug? Maybe you've talked yourself into, into believing that God knows. God, God knows I sin. He knows everything, so I, I don't need to say it. God knows. And friends, this is a dangerous place to be. As Christians, we are here and we should be the chief repenters in this world because we understand what our sin cost. We should be ready to come to God and repent and to confess and repent and turn away from our sins. You know, confession's not enough. We need to repent. We need to turn away. We need to put away the sin. And coming back to Watson and his book on repentance, he talks about confession and how we should look to kill our sins and confessing them and not looking to return to them. He quotes one of the early Greek fathers, Origen, who says, he calls confession the vomit of the soul, whereby the conscience is eased by that burden which did lie upon it. Now when we have vomited up our sin by confession, we must not return to this vomit. There's a word picture for you. Who would want to return to that? So next time you sin, think of it that way. When you confess to God, Run. So that was my first question. When was the last time that you have said, I've sinned against God and confessed, come to him? And the second, when was the last time you prayed? Maybe you're sitting here thinking, that's a really strange question because it would seem that if you're here in church on a Sunday morning that you most definitely pray. But I would wager that there are a percentage of people here that finished this last week without going to God once. You, you did it. You finished the week. You, 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 you got everything done on your to-do list. You showed up for work or you showed up for school, kids. And you did it all without consulting God. Do you feel accomplished now? The scary thing is that you can feel accomplished. You can feel complete. Because you're now learning to do it all on your own. And when you refuse to pray, you're, you're learning to lean on yourself, and that's it. And friends, we can become quite good at that. Self-sufficient individuals with, without re relying on God at all. And those are the type of people that Satan would love to grow in our church. If, if Satan could just get you here each week, to, to fill you up with good music and a sermon, then for you to leave and not change, not read your Bible, not pray, he would be thrilled. In fact, he would love for you to continue to come to the church for the rest of your life. As long as you don't obey, as long as you don't pray, as long as you don't read your Bible, he would love for that to happen. Have any of you ever read the book by C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters? 
novel written from this vantage point of a demon to the, to the young nephew. He writes, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the, the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, with, without milestones, without signposts. Says this too, the best thing where it is possible is to keep the patient, that's us, from the serious intention of praying altogether. When the patient is an adult, recently reconverted to the enemy's party like you, man, this is best done by encouraging him to remember or to think he remembers the parrot-like nature of his prayers in childhood. At the very least, they can be persuaded that bodily position makes no difference in their prayers, for they constantly forget what you must always remember, that they are animals and that whatever their bodies do affect their souls. It is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. And we can so easily just go through a day not even giving a thought to God, not spending any time in prayer, and in so doing, fulfill the mission of Satan. And so I ask do you pray? When was the last time you prayed? And if you are praying, friends, don't lose heart. God will answer in his time. We know that God will answer us when we come to him in prayer because one terrible day, he did not answer Jesus when he called. Jesus' prayers were we're given the rejection that we sinners deserve so that our prayers could have the reception that he deserves. We have access to God because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. So let's not spend another day without spending time in prayer. Let's resolve to leave this place to be people that, that pray, not as a last resort, but as the first and foremost, day in and day out. Let's pray now. Father, I thank you for this morning. And God, I thank you for the challenge of your word, the challenge to my heart, my life this week, the areas in my life where you've brought conviction and areas where I need to grow and God, I pray for the same of your people here. May they be challenged by your word this morning. I, God, I ask that we would be people of prayer. That we would be saturated with your word when we go to you in prayer. God, help us to do this. Encourage us, remind us when we forget, when we get distracted, when we, we think other things are more important or pressing in on us. God, help us. Remind us that we need to talk with you. That we need to continue the conversation that's already going. God, I pray for those that are seated here this morning, whether they've been in church for years or this is their first Sunday. And they don't have a relationship with you. And some of the things that we've talked about this morning, God, is foreign to them. I pray that you would bring conviction upon their heart. 
I pray that you would give them the faith that they need to believe. You would cause them to to turn from their sin of following themselves and following the world and that they would follow you and you alone. God, I pray that you would help them. You would bring what they need. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.